0: All right, here we go. I'm starting to get my rhythm back, but, uh, you know, who knows? (laughs) At the latest Southern Baptist Convention, two churches that had been removed by the executive council, or executive committee, had appealed their removal to the messengers for reinstatement. The issue was primarily over women as pastors, convention overwhelmingly upheld the decision of the executive committee committee, by a nearly 90% vote. That's significant among Baptists because we split over everything. Uh, That means those two churches, including Saddleback Community Church, were removed from friendly cooperation with the National Southern Baptist Convention. Now They remain in the California State Convention, as we do, and the Orange County Association Because each Baptist entity has its own membership standards that it uh, addresses. And um, you can belong to one of them and not belong to others. But this issue is going to trickle down. Normally these issues trickle up from the association to the national convention. This one's going the opposite direction. We'll see what happens. Now this subject's very conflated and I can't address it fully in one sermon or even a small series. Um, So I decided to address some preliminary issues that are part of the reason for the tradition of male pastors among Southern Baptists and why this issue is often confused in the minds of those watching us from outside the convention. You may be asked uh, about this from your friends in other churches and I want you to be able to respond from a place of knowledge. Now, for Baptists, all doctrine begins with the Scriptures. But unfortunately, in recent decades, Baptists as well as other evangelicals have not retained a full knowledge of the text of Scripture, and they've begun using the what I call the three verse linkage to doctrine. Judas went and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. What you do, do quickly. Three verses strung together like popcorn out of context, that makes sense if you say it that way, but we don't really want to create doctrine in that kind of framework. That's not really sound doctrine. So today I want to explain an underpinning doctrine of scripture that comes to play in this discussion of men and women. We have a broad discussion in our culture about what gender even is. And then there are theological issues that have to be addressed. So I want to talk about what I'm calling male responsibility. I'm using the word responsibility. I might use the word accountability. But the one word I don't want to use is authority. Because there's a big difference. Many people think that the Bible teaches male authority. And there was a group in the 60s and 70s, uh, basic youth conflicts, that really taught this kind of authoritarian hierarchy and we are living with the result of that in many of our churches. So I'm talking about responsibility and accountability because a person who has authority can do what they want. Jesus has authority. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth, he says. You go and do this. That's authority. When I was dean of the School of Behavioral Sciences at Cal Baptist, People used to say to me, must be wonderful because you can do whatever you want. Well, they didn't know the job description. I wasn't in charge of the school. I was responsible for the school to the president. right? So I couldn't do whatever I wanted. I had to do what he wanted to the best of my ability in that context. So I'm talking about male accountability and responsibility. I'm not talking about male authority. Uh, So, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn there, but I want to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. The foundation of all scripture is the Torah, and so we want to begin looking at this doctrine from that basis. In Genesis 1, God tells us that he created man, the word Adam there, in his own image. In the image of God created he, him, male and female, he created them. Interesting that that is stated in the beginning of God's creation. Then it says, they were told, this couple that were created, to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the animals of the the earth. They were to procreate and be fruitful. In other words, God didn't make man and woman... He made a husband and a wife. That's really important. In Genesis 2, we're given more details. God formed a man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And then God put him in the garden, and he told him that he could eat from every tree of the garden, but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from there, you will die. Now, this is really fascinating. If you read that text... You will realize that the very next thing that God says after he tells Adam don't eat from the tree or you will die. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him. Now, What does that mean? That means that when God gave the commandment not to eat to the tree. He gave it to Adam and Eve wasn't even created yet. This was a commandment of God to the man who would be the husband of this woman. And that chapter 2 ends with, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. This is about marriage. It is not about male authority over women. So we get to chapter 3. And you know chapter 3, but I want to look at it uh, with some uh, closer eyes. This text is critical. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. The serpent in the Middle East is a wise creature. If this had been written in Britain, it would be an owl. He'd come as an owl, a wise creature. Uh, and he said, As God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. And mo- and the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God has said, you shall not eat or touch it or you will die. Now, I don't know where Eve got her information. God didn't tell Adam he couldn't touch it. He said he couldn't eat it. So either Adam told Eve we can't eat from it, we can't even touch it. Or, Eve is embellishing what Adam told her. She got her information from Adam, not from God. God got it. Uh, Adam got it from God. Well, then the scripture tells us that Eve ate from the tree. When she ate from the tree, Adam's not there. Adam's told her one thing, the serpent's telling her another thing. You got it wrong, God didn't mean that. Here's what he meant. She complies and then she gives it to Adam and he eats. Now what's important here is that we understand that uh, Adam is not deceived. He's not tricked. He's not uh, uh, inconclusive about what's happened God has told him, don't eat from it. Eve's eating from it, and he's eating from it. She was tricked into eating it. Adam ate deliberately. And we know the results. God gave direct, different punishments related to marriage and procreation to the couple. To the wife, who will give birth. She will give birth in a higher pain level and will... In some sense, think that something's wrong, so that she understands that she can misinterpret. And Adam will be frustrated in his trying to provide by thorns and uh, problems in the earth that's cursed. So God says to the wife, "Gods, your desire will be for your husband. You'll want your husband." to go along with you, and he will rule over you. It's an interesting term about having some dominance there. Two major doctrines flow out of this. One is that we all died in Adam. The Bible says, as in Adam we all die, not as in Eve we all die." It is the sin of Adam, the intentional violation that was done by a male that makes Jesus become the second Christ, the second Adam who now will do it. He doesn't become the second Eve. So, what we have here is a male responsibility. And the second lesson is that as husband, Adam must take the oversight over his wife. But that is not authority. It is protection against her vulnerability towards being manipulated. Now it's important to underscore that this is about husband and wife, not men and women. The the marital relationship is the focus of these texts, not single men and single women. We have to look further in the scriptures to see this carried out in more detail. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 30. When I teach this at Cal Baptist, I usually tell people, This is the part of your Bible that's still new. They haven't looked at it, right? But it's very critical that we understand the Older Testament if we're going to appropriately understand the Newer Testament. So, this is related to vows, and it says Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes and the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man takes a vow to the Lord, takes a note to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, the first thing that Paul tells us here is that God holds a man fully accountable for any vow that comes out of his mouth. And the rest of the chapter is going to make some exceptions to that in the case of two. People, wives, and daughters in their father's house in their youth, and what Paul's going, what Moses is going to say here, is that when a woman makes the vow and she's a youth in her father's house, and her father hears, and Moses describes this in the text as a rashly made vow. In other words, she is she is kind of uh, Brought into a zeal for this. It's not thought through implicationally. And so the the father can say, you're not doing that. If the father stops it, the Lord will forgive her of the vow. If the father says nothing, then her vow stands. And if later the father says, oh, I want you to stop that, he will bear the responsibility for the broken vow. Male responsibility. The chapter goes on to say that if a wife makes that, the husband can do the same thing. In other words, there is a protection here against a rash vow to the Lord given to a wife and to a daughter in her father's household. The one who has the accountability is the father. But I want you to look in this chapter at uh, verse 9. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. You following me? A woman who's been divorced or is widowed stands fully accountable to God for what comes out of her mouth. She does not have that same protection in that context. This is one of the reasons why the Bible talks about us being careful for widows and for fatherless uh, people. This demonstrates again that the responsibility is for the purposes of marriage and the household. This is husband-wife, father-daughter context. Now this is really important because I believe Paul is referring to this text in some statements he makes in the Newer Testament. So I want you to Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm trying to give you some context for verses that people will use in this discussion. That, that if they're taken out of context, we get the Judas hung himself, go thou and do likewise, what you do, do quickly, kind of idea. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I had a 1 Corinthians yesterday in my Bible. Here it is. Chapter 11. Verse 3. Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And here we go again with a text that probably is not well translated. What Paul is actually saying is, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every husband. And the husband is the head of a wife. And God is the head of Christ. He's talking about relational connections where one is the head. Understand that Jesus is the head of the church. And when Paul describes him as head of the church, he doesn't call him Lord. He calls him the Savior of the body. It's a protective role. So he says, I want you uh, that every husband then who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, which is Christ. And every wife who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, that would be her husband, she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. He goes on and says in this context that... uh, Both men and women can do two things. I want you to get this, because when we get to his next verse, you've got to see it in context. He says that the wife can pray or prophesy. He's talking about in the context of the body. And these are terms that have to do with liturgical prayers. And proclaiming the word, which is what we do together when we gather together. Remember that Joel had predicted, and Peter said it had happened when the Holy Spirit came, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So this is a biblical ground base that is found in the Newer Testament. And it's important to keep that in mind, uh, Because this is done, he says, for the angels' sake. Why the angels' sake? Angels don't marry and they don't procreate. Jesus talks about that. And therefore, the angels need to understand this marital relationship because it shows the relationship between Christ and his body, the church. Don't want to get into the head covering thing. Paul says the hair difference is good enough. So we'll leave that at that. But this gives us a foundation now for 1 Corinthians 14. Here is one of the verses that gets quoted in these conversations. It's going to sound like I'm arguing against the male pastor role. I'll get to that next week. Uh, I'm trying to argue against people pulling verses out of context and using them where they don't belong. So, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, and I've heard this quoted in the last three weeks quite a few times, the women are to keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, what's the key here? First of all, Paul's already said that they can prophesy and pray. It's hard to do that without speaking. So, he's got to be talking about something else, and he tells us. He says... This is what the law says. I love the commentaries that say this was Roman law. <laughs> it was not Roman law that Paul's talking about. He's talking about the Torah. He's talking about Numbers chapter 30. He's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. So, let's try that. 34. The wives are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak rashly. Remember, it's a rash statement. They are to subject themselves. To who? To their husbands, as the law says. The wives are to keep silent in the church. They're not permitted to speak, as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a wife to speak in church rashly. Now, what is this talking about? It's talking about disruption of the marriage in the context of the congregation where a husband and wife get into it in front of the congregation. If he says something and she doesn't get it, what are you talking about? It's not a good thing in here. That's a home conversation. Okay. Notice they translated husband perfectly. That they translated the other word that can either mean woman or wife as woman. And that's why this verse gets quoted as women are not to, to speak. But that would mean you can't sing. That would mean you can't give testimony. That would mean all of the things that most churches are doing would not be allowed. Now, there are some churches, take this very strictly. I was in a Plymouth Brethren camp one time, and I was leading the music, and I had done a great job because I'm good at that, right? <laughs> so I did it, and we got done, and I said to the pianist, who was very, very good, would you lead us in prayer? And she goes, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, she's got a cough drop or something in her mouth. So I leaned down, and I said, can you lead the prayer? Mm-hmm. So I led the prayer, and I found out later they're not allowed to pray, they're not allowed to do anything. She wasn't even singing when she was playing the piano. So there are people that take those literal, but as I said, that's out of context. So, I want to get to another verse, and then I'm going to let it go for this week, okay? I just want you to percolate on this a little bit. We'll talk more next week. First Timothy chapter 2. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the precursor to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Probably obvious. 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about elders, overseers, deacons, and all of that. So, leading up to that discussion, Paul makes a statement to Timothy. And we're going to pick it up at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Well, I get that one quoted all the time too. And I've tried to get this changed in the NASB, but I... Can't seem to win the argument. Even if they think I might be right, they don't they won't take the chance on what this would do to sales, right? <laughs> so let me let me take a look at the next verse. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Oh, interesting. This verse is Paul addressing Genesis, which we've already looked at, right? So let's go back and look at it a little different. A wife must quietly receive instruction with entirely submissiveness. I do not allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over a husband, but to remain quiet. For Adam was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, the wife being deceived, fell into transgression. But wives will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. What's he talking about? He's talking about the pain in childbirth. The word there, sozo, can be interpreted saved. There's actually people who say women are saved if they give birth. That's a bizarre doctrine. Paul's saying... I don't want the wife to usurp authority or instruct her husband. First of all, ladies, it doesn't work. It just irritates the pig, right? right? They say don't try to teach a pig to sing. Doesn't work and it irritates the pig. That's the joke, right? Uh, we don't, because we become the boy who's gonna slap back at our mommy in that thing, okay? Always tell wives. How do I get my husband to do that? Get another man to talk to him. Don't you talk to him. So Paul says, I don't allow a woman, a wife, to teach or exercise authority over a husband, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. Adam was the husband, Eve was the wife. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. But wives will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is really important because these verses are used to address uh, this issue of women preaching and and being pastors. And I want to divide those subjects. I'll divide them more next week because I think that uh, this is really important. So all of these texts, Paul is referring back to Genesis and Numbers 30. Um, Not talking to individual men and women, but talking to the husband-wife relationship. Now there's more of male responsibility in the New Testament. We see this in the rules of the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present her to himself right Fathers, bring up your children in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. That idea of male responsibility is found in in Ephesians and Colossians. And particularly in 1 Peter. Where Sarah is the uh, model wife. who, Even when her husband is not obeying the Lord. She is quietly submitting. So that God has a direct uh, target with Abraham. And those of you who know Linda and my story, Linda learned that that and God nailed me too. We're gonna I want you to keep in mind that this male responsibility or accountability is based on the original sin in the context of marriage and family. So we're gonna look at how this extends into the eldership of the church and how it affects the office of pastor or preacher in Baptist tradition. But we must not assume that the roles in marriage and family directly extend into societal roles. That was one of the things that happened in America and created, I think, the need for the feminist movement in the 60s and then in the 20s and in the 1880s. There was this idea that if that was the role at home, that was the role in public. Not between husband and wife, but between men and women. Right? So, who's the doctor? The man. Who's the nurse? The woman. Who's the pilot? The man. Who's serving drinks in the back? The woman. Right. Who's the boss? The man. Who's the secretary in the steno pool? The woman. Those things moved out, not because the Bible said to do that, but because people were doing this stuff at home, and then began to do the roles in other contexts. We have to rethink some of that. Now, I think the feminist movement went too far, because it wanted to undo marriage and family. I'm trying to protect the relationship of husbands and wives. I don't really care about gender and who drives a bus. You can drive a bus if you're male or female. You can fly a plane if you're male or female. But husbands and wives are male-female roles related to God creating us in his image. And that foundational doctrine has to be there before we talk about any of these other things, let alone the professional ministry which didn't exist in the biblical times. All right. Let's pray. I'm done early. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask God that you would help us To understand what you're saying before we try to apply it to our situations. And that we would uh, understand the whole of the scriptures instead of a verse here and a verse there. Help us to be uh, enlightening to our fellow believers. And help us, Lord, to calm some of the uh, slogan-type responses that people give to these issues. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any Q&A?